So good afternoon, everybody. Um, I am super geeked to be doing this because I am absolutely in love with this musical. I've listened to it. I have it on a loop, kind of an endless loop in my car, listening to it again and again and again and again. So I'm, I'm really excited to be on, on this panel. And uh, we thought that we, we were talking about maybe starting off by showing you, for those of you who have been under a rock and have no idea what this is about, to show you like the opening scene uh, from this. And so what we're going to show you is actually when Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, who is the son of Puerto Rican immigrants, who thought it'd be a great idea to write this, to do a musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton, because why hasn't someone done it before, um, went to the White House and performed with the cast there. So we thought we'd show you that opening scene and, and then kind of be able to take it from there and talk to you about it. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> opening song, which kind of sets sets up Alexander Hamilton's life. And as I was saying, he was born in the West Indies, the illegitimate son of a Scotsman and his mother who was not married to his father, hence the whole Ill illegitimacy thing. And he really had a lot of unfortunate encounters. His father abandoned them, uh, he and his brother and his mother, and his mother died shortly thereafter. He was then uh, awarded custody to his cousin, and his cousin very shortly thereafter committed suicide. So I mean, this guy had one thing after another uh, in his background. But he was extremely smart. It was said that he had about 34 books in his house at the time, and he used to devour them. So the idea of somebody having 34 books at a time when not a lot of people were literate is a pretty amazing thing. He was very self-taught, and after a hurricane blew in on St. Croix, and he wrote a remarkable essay on it, he was given basically a scholarship to come to New York and to get an education. And he really wanted to be in New York where the action was at because the revolution was starting to heat up, and he knew that's where he needed to be. Um, there's a, a quote, two quotes I wanted to throw out at you. One is really interesting, that the education of this future abolitionist was partly underwritten by sugarcane harvested by slaves because St. Croix was an island that was engaged in the slave trade, and it was a particularly nasty business uh, in the West Indies. And uh, another quote is that the fact that this abominable childhood produced a strong, productive, self-reliant human being, this fatherless adolescent could have ended up that he could have ended up a founding father of a country he'd not yet even seen seems little short of miraculous. So he really kind of comes from these improbable backgrounds and, and literally is kind of this Horatio Alger kind of works his way up, uh, pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and works his way up to end up being the aide-de-camp or secretary to General George Washington during the revolution. Simply, again, on his own smarts. Anybody wanna? Yeah, I think Part of our, our panel here is, and our, our mission is to kind of talk a bit about the context behind what makes Alexander Hamilton perhaps such an interesting figure to us now, given how similar or different we are from the time in which sort of he is living. And I think that Professor Fifeli brings up some very interesting sort of points about that, right? The West Indies is a incredibly brutal place uh, at a time when sugar profits and slavery are central to the success of the British Empire, right? Uh, we need to view, right, his statements about wanting to take his shot, about in some ways wanting a war, you know, within the context of, you know, class uh, and what it meant uh, to try to raise oneself mm -hmm. within that time, you know. I don't know if we would be able to say that, that Alexander Hamilton 
would be perhaps a radical by our standards, perhaps, or even sort of by his. You know, we should probably look to Thomas Paine uh, much more so uh, than him. Uh, you know, while, but there are ways to look at sort of what he does and, and what he is trying to do uh, with, with some element of, of, of radicalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that that certainly stands out, uh, you know, sort of at that time. Uh, and if we're sort of telling, you know, sort of part of the, the timeline, I mean, just continue from where you were saying, or you can... Uh, I don't you know. Does Jim, you want to add anything, Jim? Yeah. Or no, you sure. I mean, uh, yeah, Hamilton gets to New York um, and tries to get into Princeton. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that goes <laughs> rather interestingly. Right. Um, but does become involved in the revolution. And this was a chance for, I mean, a lot of the sort of preconditions um, going back to the end of the French and Indian War, there's something called Pontiac's Rebellion. And, the per and, and a lot of it is perception between London and the colonies, where in London, you know, for the second time in 20 years, the colonists started a war with Native Americans that they couldn't finish. British blood and treasure has had to be spent to do this. And so the new king, George III, says, enough, you can't go west. And so a lot of people of Hamilton's age viewed this as kind of being denied an opportunity. You know, it, for someone like Hamilton, he would essentially, most people who had his background, I think we could agree, would probably end up at best maybe an indentured servant, mm -hmm. like a part-time slave who probably would be impoverished for his entire life. And if he were lucky, maybe get a, you know, an acre or two of ground that he could call his own. And so that's, I think, part of the mythos aspect of Alexander Hamilton. Instead of going along that trajectory, he ends up becoming Secretary of the Treasury, truly a self-made man. I mean, there's no one around him. He, he accumulates sponsors at different times, sure, but you know, he, he works very doggedly to do that, and he works very mm -hmm. hard once he's got some support. Mm -hmm. So I think it plays into that sort of American, you know, rags to riches story mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and for, for many people of his age, the revolution was that opportunity. And so that's why he jumps on board and, and you know, he does, he gains notice. Um, it's, it's also, I think, important to realize that Washington staff, the, the term they used then was his family, his military family, because they literally spent pretty much 24-7 together, um, which means that Alexander Hamilton as a 20-something is getting a chance to meet people who will eventually shape the United mm -hmm. States and forge relationships with them that are already a decade old by the time he enters New York politics. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of takes us through a little bit further. That was something I actually found kind of interesting too about the relationship. If, you, if those of you who are familiar with the musical, um, within the musical it's kind of made it, seem, made it seem as though Alexander Hamilton and George Washington have this kind of very paternalistic father-son kind of relationship. And one of the things I found interesting in the Chernobyl biography was talking about how it seemed like Washington viewed him that way, but Hamilton really didn't seem to view Washington the same way, did not have a really close relationship the way it's kind of described. He seemed to respect him tremendously, um, and whatever criticisms he had of him were private, but he didn't seem to kind of have that same sort of uh, uh, look, and, and this could be because he was the product of, he was a man without a father, and so it could be that maybe he had difficulty trusting or whatever that means, the psychological stuff I'll leave to the experts, but he definitely uh, was not as close and attached to, to George Washington as it was made to appear, um, but he definitely had tremendous respect for him, and it's, it's the general who kind of helps propel his career because he attaches his fortunes to the general, recognizing that if he wants to have his shot and get somewhere, this is the way to do it because he's eager to fight the whole time. And Washington is reluctant to give him a command because he's really, 
his right-hand guy. Like, he's the guy that can translate Washington's letters into French because he's fluent in French, and he was able to capture Washington's tone. He was an excellent writer, and so he just had this ability that made him indispensable to Washington. But the whole time, he's kind of chafing because he wants more. He wants to get this military command, um, which he's finally given uh, towards the end of the war. Yeah. Um, I know, and, and, and throughout the war, too, but I think this big kind of moment comes, uh, I believe, at Yorktown. Yeah. And, and that's something, you know, to, to build on, right, that it's, it's important to clarify that context, right? Washington doesn't have, uh, you know, sort of any uh, biological children mm -hmm. uh, of, of his own, and so he looked in some cases on some of these young officers, uh, these young men as, as nearly sons. Um, you know, within the late 18th century, that idea of, of service in the British Army sort of as an officer or achieving military glory was an essential way to have financial, social, and, and cultural success. Remember, we're still dealing with a time where, where birthright nobility means something. Uh, you know, it, it truly does. And so while the English have their sort of middle class and sort of working towards it, um, you know, you're still working against a system where having a patron, having someone who favors you, means a great deal. While we don't have that same birthright nobility in the new constitutional system and everything of, you know, you're still operating from that as a cultural sort of precept. Uh, so for someone sort of like Hamilton, right, having these backers is, is very important. But then again, he's not the only one amongst the founders to have sort of that type of, of backing. You know, I mentioned Payne earlier, right? He's someone who is favored or at least backed uh, at the beginning by, by Benjamin Franklin, right? If, uh, one favors the other. Mm -hmm. Did you want anything, Jim, or you want me to? I'm anything? good at the moment. Okay. So let's talk about the duel. I mean, okay. do all of you know how Alexander Hamilton died? <laughs> Who was, and who was Burr? The vice, so the treasury of the secretary, who is at this point retired from that, but he is, uh, has been, he gets shot and killed by the vice president of the United States. So if you thought that Dick Cheney shooting a friend of his in, in the face was really bad, you know, a couple years ago back in the Bush administration, this was even more yeah, scandalous. The idea yeah, that yeah. the vice president killed uh, this, this famous federalist figure, one of the most famous politicians in the country, in a duel. So I don't know, do you wanna maybe start off by talking a little bit about duels and the idea and then we could take it from there? And appropriately enough, the duel happened in an area of North Jersey that was known, later became known as a mob dumping ground. So you know, it kind of continued <laughs> a tradition. Um, I'm born on the East Coast. At any rate, um, <laughs> we know these things, but we don't talk about them. We At any rate, um, no, <laughs> as far as the duel went, yeah, and, and it's also important to point out, I think a lot of times with the, both the musical and the Chernow biography, Hamilton's the hero, mm -hmm. but he's also, he was really a human being. He was an instigator. He started it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he, and, and this was not his, this was his last duel, for obvious reasons, um, but it was not his, it was far from his only one, you know, and, and most of them he started. Um, the way, there's something called the Code Duello that evolves out of the Middle Ages. Um, it really comes, actually, I did some looking at this. The version that becomes popular in the U.S. was promulgated in Ireland, and, and the key thing is the purpose of the code is, in essence, to prevent a duel from happening. Happening. Once, you know, you've probably seen in the movies, right? You literally, 
it doesn't always happen this way where someone slaps someone else with the white glove. No, they, they, you know, um, they, they can basically say that's it. You know, it can, it can be the same thing we might remember from, from grammar school of, you know, I call you out, right? But the idea is from that point on, they will usually set a date about a month or two later, and the two belligerents, two guys who have the fight, cannot see one another. And so you, you hear about these seconds. Well, they communicate back and forth, but most of what they do is, you know, bring a message of say, saying, hey, look, he's, he's willing to let this go if you'll apologize. Like, say, you know, there was an insult at a public place. So, okay, if we meet up at a public, and we don't even have to say, right, you know, say in this situation, it wouldn't be like, hey, everybody, look, Josh, I, I'm really sorry. <laughs> we could just actually stand in the corner, have this apology, and then all, as long as it's negotiated. And at the very, at the very end, should it come to an actual duel, there's also this whole very strict set of circumstances, set of, set of rules that have to be involved. Because, like, you also have a criminal justice system. Um, <laughs> and essentially, you are going to have a murder. Someone has a good chance of getting killed here. And so they have things like, you know, it, it talks about the oarsmen who row them over mm -hmm. have to turn their backs because then they're not witnesses. <laughs> yeah, um, even the doctor had to turn his back and could only turn around after the shots are fired and then go and say, okay, look, you know. Um, and, and there's a lot of dispute too as to, you know, and, and again, part of that throwing away my shot. You could even then, the standard was you would shoot off and away to the ground. So, and it's a one-shot gun. So once your gun is unloaded, you know, you're, if you have the first shot, you're basically saying, look, I'm good, we're not gonna fight, which then throws it all on the other person. If they fire, they're committing murder because they are shooting an unarmed person. Okay, so, and, and again, all this is sort of written out. There's you know, 10 points for, for a successful duel. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> 10 dual commandments, if yeah. you wanna listen to that one. That's, that actually happens twice. Well, the ironic thing is that, that Hamilton's son yeah, also, also died killed. in a duel defending his father. Um, yep. His father was involved, and we could talk about this too, a scandalous affair in which he basically published a pamphlet saying, yeah, I had an adulterous affair with this woman and her husband and the wife were basically trying to extort money out of me. Um, and so that, but he, his career, his ambition meant more to him than maybe going public and embarrassing his wife. He didn't want to, he, he was, yeah, all of this did end his, any presidential ambitions he might have had. <clears throat> but with the publication of that pamphlet, out in the open, um, his son fought a duel, I think in, it was like in the late 1790s, I believe, yeah. um, and he's, he's killed in the duel. And so that had a major impact. So it was, you know, by all accounts, Hamilton was not a great lover of duels, although he participated in, in a number of them throughout his career, one of them um, early on during the war when, um, when General Lee was criticizing General Washington and he basically, his friend, John Lawrence, calls him out and they fight a duel. And uh, that's the first time you hear the Ten Duel Commandments uh, in, the, <laughs> in the musical. Any, uh, are there any, any questions or, sorry, uh, yeah, uh, yes, sir. Why, why are the people in uh, the undergarments in the <laughs> 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 Okay, so this is I'll definitely, oh, go ahead. I'll let you take that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely a very unorthodox musical. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote it with the idea that he, wa he wants it to be a reflection of what America is like now, not what America was like back in, in the 18th century, 19, early 19th century. So he, he casts a diverse group of people. So the, the actor who plays George Washington is black. 
uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who plays Hamilton, is Porter, of son of Puerto Rican immigrants, of Puerto Rican descent. And so it's a very, the, the woman who plays Angelica Schuyler is black. Um, his wife, I believe, and I'm, I'm not certain, I want to say that she's, I think she's part Asian. Um, so it's a very interesting kind of mix of people. And so the cast almost acts like a, a chorus, if you will, throughout. And so I think that was just part of the unorthodoxy of it. He was trying to, I think, capture an audience. And one way to do it is to show women in their corsets. So, you know, that's kind of one way to get people to, to pay attention. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, what? Yeah, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. No, the comment was just that from the from the neck down, they're in period costume, but but you know their heads, they're from the neck up. It's all contemporary. Other questions? Yes, sir. Aaron, Aaron Burr. Burr. Sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> are you Aaron Burr, hand sir? Hand there <laughs> I think there's, there's another yeah. question back there. I can't necessarily speak to, to his personal family, but in terms of effect on, on dueling, of I can say that it, you know, it didn't necessarily, d dueling itself was decreasing, but the idea of a sort of honor code amongst members of the gentry, amongst members of what we might call today the sort of 1%, um, you know, that doesn't decrease. I mean, most f famously so, um, you know, you have a, a congressman, you know, bludgeoning a, a, a senator uh, on, on the floor of the Senate uh, in the 1850s over sort of the issues over slavery, and the whole idea was that he had insulted him, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so even though the, the actual dueling with dueling pistols and sort of these types of things decreases to a certain extent, um, you have at least within the, the planter class uh, of, of slave owners uh, and other portions of the upper class around the country a belief that to the upper class different laws apply mm -hmm. uh, or don't apply. Uh, so, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think you also get like a sort of regional change there too. Yeah. Where, where it definitely becomes less popular and more almost shunned in the north and I've actually seen, um, I heard a paper a few years ago where a southern army officer was actually arrested for assault right. in the north. When he was, con he called it a duel, and in the north they called it, no, that's assault with a cane. That's assault and battery. <laughs> so, so and, and, and again, that feeds into the regionalism that eventually contributes in, uh, to the Civil War. So. Mm -hmm. And I'd just like to make an observation, if I may, that uh, this is at a time when women were viewed as the weaker sex. Um, and could not vote and had no political voice, yet men were having battles with guns because somebody called me a bad name, <laughs> and so I can't take being called a bad name, so let me fight and you because you're calling me a bad name. So I just want to throw that out there. And maybe that's something to, to clarify of, you know, the, the great question, you know, if, if, if Lin-Manuel Miranda was here would be, you know, why Hamilton, right? Uh, and, you know, Ron Chernow wrote an incredible biography and of course, what they're doing with the story of Hamilton's life is using it as a platform to have a dialogue about who we are as a people mm -hmm. today 
you know, through the lens of what we were sort of at that time. You know, e although there are aspects of truth uh, within it, right, you know, every single moment, of course, is not an accurate representation of historical reality. Uh, of, you know, if we were to discuss every aspect of, of Hamilton's very prominent political career in the 1780s and in the 1790s, not just as Secretary of the Treasury, but as a, a leading uh, figure within the Federalist Party of, you know, he has some pretty strong opinions about things like free speech or the lack thereof, uh, of uh, war, of debt, of whether or not as a military officer he can, you know, arrest people uh, in Pennsylvania for making whiskey uh, and those types of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he is an extremely significant figure within this period of the founding. But yes. Awkward. So, do we have time? You want maybe play a little bit of the cabinet battle, or do you think we maybe have a couple minutes? Maybe, maybe like, do you guys mind or? That's because that's, that's one of the ones I think if we're gonna play any of them, that's because that's uh, about the rivalry between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton over basically how is this new country going to look? And Alexander Hamilton, as Professor Fulton pointed out, had a very specific vision for how he wanted it to work, to be more of a commercial banking financial center, whereas Thomas Jefferson viewed it, viewed it as more of like this agrarian republic of like small, you know, independent farmers and that kind of a vision. And those two completely and, clashed. And, and to your point about quoting Jefferson and everything of, you know, keeping in mind through through all of this, you know, how they view race and how we view race are, of course, two totally different things, right? right? Yeah, when they say all men are created equal, you know, they are saying all freeborn white men who have property uh, are <laughs> and created equal. And are of e English descent. And are of English descent, are equal. Everybody else, eh, sorry. Eh, doesn't really count, yeah. And while Hamilton wasn't necessarily, he's, uh, he was an abolitionist, he did advocate the abolition of slavery, but he didn't apply that the Hamiltonian zeal, let's see, that no. he applied to other things to the issue, to the cause of slavery. Yeah. So. yeah. A lot of what we were saying. <laughs> so, right. And this style is awesome, right? I mean, it, it, it's something that's appealing, I think, especially to a younger audience, which is what he had intended. But you're getting two kind of different visions of what this, of this country was going to look like. The idea of Hamilton saying this country needs a, a line of credit, the same way that if you want to buy a car, you have to establish credit, right? It's the same principle. The country had to establish credit in order to establish itself as a worthy nation that could borrow and kind of engage in, in trade with the rest of the world. So, um, yeah, I'll stop there. Any, any other thoughts other on that? Question, yes. I got a couple of theories on that, but I don't know if I can say it in public. So. <laughs> 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 and 
Did you I think Lin Manuel. I think that might be in the sequel from <laughs> Lin Manuel Noriega. <laughs> there, there was one point you made though that I I picked up on about um, maybe think of Washington's farewell address and him addressing it. But I, I what was the first thing you said if you could say it before? Similar. How much politics are similar? Oh, how today, they're similar, yeah. yeah, because thank you, how the politics are similar. Um, do you guys mind? I keep I, talking, I'm sorry. You want to go ahead? I can. I mean, I, 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 I think most people would certainly, most scholars would agree that, yeah, we're dealing with some of the same issues. I mean, in the 1780s with the Constitutional Convention, you know, the, the big debates are over use of government, right, and how much of government, whether or not government is fundamentally good, and then the systems sort of around that. Where things, I, I would say, probably have changed might be over how we debate sort of politics publicly uh, and whether or not it can be debated publicly, uh, and especially what we ask and expect from our politicians publicly. Uh, you know, right now we're in the midst of a, another fairly long uh, presidential election process, uh, and it's an extremely public process, uh, you know, on all sides. Uh, and, you know, in that period, it would not be, right, mm -hmm. of, it would be seen as completely beneath anyone who would assume the presidency to put themselves out there sort of in that way, uh, of that, at some level, they did not deserve uh, the presidency, the office of the presidency, because they were seeking it. Uh, and, uh, you know, they would be seen as really sort of self-serving and, and traitors to, to the sovereign, which would be the people. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I would absolutely agree that many of the same themes from then certainly sort of translate to now, but that would be one that would certainly be very different. We expect uh, to hear from our politicians, uh, and our politicians in the 1790s didn't feel they needed us uh, to do a really much of anything. Uh, so, well, in building on that, I think it also I, I think like you know you get this. It's a 180 from in the 1790s. You have disinterest, where you know a politician in the 1790s would say, "If you would like my services, I will serve." Whereas today, you know, we expect them to beg us for our vote. If, if you did that, you know, yeah. kind of build on what you said, if you did that in the 1790s, the, that would just generate sort of a concern over why do you want that office so much? They would almost assume you were corrupt because if you wanted the office that much, it must be for, for some nefarious purpose. You right. want to, you know, um, and, and maybe they were onto something there. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe they had it all figured out in that respect. Well, I certainly think it's true that if you are seeking out the presidency, you do have to have a certain amount of ambition in order to do that. And Aaron Burr actually did some of that kind of politicking going door to door when he was running for president in 1800. But I wanted to go back to what you were saying about um, the partisanship. That was one of the things that, that in 1796, when President Washington takes this rather, makes this rather dramatic decision to not seek another term, you know, there were no presidential limits, term limits at the time. He could have kept running for life and he voluntarily stepped down. Now my theory has to do more with the fact that if you ever look at the before and after photographs of presidents, you know, before they look great and after they look like the, the crypt keeper from Tales from the Crypt, because they're, they, they're just, they're, it exhausts them. But he makes this decision to step down and he says, you know, I want to teach the country how to say goodbye and move on. That's one of the lyrics from the, from the musical. And he, t he warns against the idea of partisan fighting that he was, did not like to see breaking out between Federalists and, and Democratic Republicans. Um, but he makes that decision, and, and one of the great moments, and I, I really wish we could show so much more of this, 
um, is when the, the King George III kind of features almost as this character who, who keeps coming in, and he has these great, great songs, but the last one is where he's saying, he's like, I'm perplexed that about Washington stepping down. He's like, I didn't know a person could do that. Like, he <laughs> never imagined that somebody, you know, are they just going to keep trading rulers again and again? Someone new is going to take the job all the time? Like, I didn't know that could possibly happen. Um, so there, that's kind of a, a great, and the fact that Washington took that stance set up a precedent for future presidents to follow. Um, and the idea of, of this transitionary government that we every you know, couple terms, we have a new president that comes, in, that comes into power and there are no you know, a la Russia dictatorships for life um, that are occurring, so. Other questions? What is the duel about? What was the duel about? So it, so, okay, um, I'll try to give you the quick kind of sketch, but basically um, Burr, um, Burr claimed that Hamilton basically, in, in multiple times, they had been friends early on, and that friendship had been tested at multiple times. Uh, Burr ran for um, a seat in the Senate, I believe it was the state Senate, and defeated uh, Hamilton's father-in-law, General Schuyler. Um, and so that was kind of one moment, and, and the fact that Hamilton, um, said some negative things about Burr when Burr was running for governor that, that Burr believed caused him to lose the election. And it ended up in the newspaper, in the Albany Register. And so there was this idea that, that basically Burr felt that, whether it was fair or not, he felt that, that Hamilton had maligned his character to the degree that the only way he could get satisfaction back and regain his honor was to seek satisfaction in a duel. And it began as this, as Jim, as Professor McIntyre alluded to, this war of words that kind of escalates. You know, um, Hamilton sends him a letter back, and then it was, there was one word they both kind of got caught up in, and, you know, there were moments where both could have backed down, and then they just didn't. Um, whether it was pride or whatever it might be, it just kept continuing to escalate and escalate to the point where it I guess neither one of them felt they could back down. And then they called for the idea of meeting in, in outside of Weehawken, New Jersey, to have this duel. So, yes, sir. Say that. Could you say that again? Right. Was there a significance if the person who started the duel killed the opponent oh, versus I, I that? I, I'm not sure of either. I, I, as long as the as long as the code is observed, in other words, as long as things are done the way they are supposed to be done, like if, if the challenge usually the challenger say pistols are popular um, with this, and I so say the challenger fires their shot and misses um, unintentionally, uh, and again. Smoothbore weapons are incredibly unreliable. Um, so I could aim at you and hit over there, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, if the weather conditions are right. So, okay, but if I, if I aimed at you, and this is why you have some people witness, right? So I aim, I shoot, I miss, you shoot, you hit, I die, you're, it's okay. okay. Even if the challenger fails, if, you know, the other person decides to carry it through. Now, there is that moment, too, where you know, 
you could look at it and say, well, you missed, so you know what? I'm going to prove that I'm better than you and say it's all okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, at any stage in this, there is a room to back out and preserve your honor and even make yourself look better right. and follow this code. Again, uh, to me, it all comes back to, I think, the fundamental idea is to prevent people from actually killing people, uh, killing each other in back alleys. And there's a, oh, sorry. And preserving ahead. one's honor. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that's yeah. really what this is all about, is the idea that being an honorable member of this gentry, right, being an honorable member of this sort of group, an honorable gentleman, you know, meant so much that they were more than willing to possibly risk their lives, right, uh, for their social identity, right? Uh, it's a very, very, very powerful thing. And I think for, for both Burr and Hamilton, it's doubly so because even Burr's biography, I mean, you know, he loses his mother, his father, his yeah, grandfather, all orphans. within the course of like two years as a young man. Mm -hmm. So you have two guys who both really kind of struggled. Granted, Hamilton more than Burr, and I think both were, were very, they, they both worked very hard to climb up through society and were keenly aware of their social position. And that notion of honor, it, it needs to be kind of constantly defended mm -hmm. for both of them. Mm -hmm. Whereas a George, you know, I always like to think that a George Washington who never fights a duel, he can, you know, if someone challenges him, he can say, well, you're beneath my contempt. And most of his contemporaries would go, yeah, because, you know, you're one of the richest men in Virginia, <laughs> you come from a long, great line of people, and all these things that build your honor, and you've got them all, so, <laughs> you know, good. Yeah. Yeah. you're good. Um, and, and, but he could walk away and keep his honor right. intact. He right. could refuse and still be honorable. What? Oh, go ahead, Nate. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, do you guys mind? Sure. Sure, I mean, the fact that, I mean, this guy leaves a tremendous legacy, this guy, that's very glib. Um, I mean, the fact that he basically creates our budgetary system, right? He basically creates a central bank. He basically creates the custom service and the Coast Guard. He's responsible for all those things. Um, and in, in terms of just, and I'll make this brief so my colleagues can, can uh, make a few comments too. Um, the fact that this musical, I think, has really just sort of shaped, I think it's gotten a new generation of people probably interested in Alexander Hamilton who never would have been otherwise. Like, why would you ever think to be, to, you know, to be, to be interested in Alexander Hamilton? So um, he really had a tremendous impact uh, on this nation and was appreciated much more after his, after his death. I think he would have been, he wasn't very well liked when he was alive. It's one of those no. things where, you know, when you die, you get better, you get suddenly likable. And that's kind of what happened with him, so. Yeah, I mean, I think his legacy, as Professor Fifoli says, is, is multifold. Um, aside from his contributions to the creation of the American economy uh, and the early years of, of the American political system, uh, you know, you end up with a, you know, the legacy of a, a life that sort of defined the early American experience in a way. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the musical, uh, it has certainly made it okay, right, to use history as, as an avenue to discuss a, a wide spectrum of things. Uh, and I think that if that is in the service of, of the public good and honor that Hamilton is, is talking about, that they're talking about the musical, then that's a good thing. Yeah, and I, I would almost um, start with the second part. I think the musical has made Hamilton someone we can talk about. It's, brought, it's, it's kind of rescued him from virtual obscurity. Yeah. We hear about Washington and Franklin. Hamilton is like a far, you know, fifth place. 
until this musical. And, and I think it's also, James as far as his legacy at the time, um, it was very checkered. I mean, yeah. he, and, and I, you know, I think on one hand, too, it also leaves a challenge for us because he's not the hero all the time. <laughs> a number of people of his own party, including John Adams, were really glad when he fell from power because Alexander Hamilton, if he believed he was right, had no problems, you know, stabbing even close supporters in the back to accomplish something. So he was not liked at the time, and, and there were people who were generally fearful of him, for good reason, too. So, I mean, I, and I think it opens up a lot of those, those questions that are still very current in our society, um, and it gives us a lens with, through which to view them and, and a, you know, a place to discuss them. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.